0: Lord Jesus, would you, the word made flesh, now take my words and let them be for us a word of encouragement this morning. In your name, amen. Well, happy new year. We'll say it all to each other many times this morning, but let me say it once and for all to all of you. Uh, If you've noticed, like I have, uh, somehow online, many people are rejoicing at saying how terrible 2016 was. So they're glad to say goodbye to 2016 for some reason. And then they're hoping and expecting to see more from 2017. Maybe you too are glad to see 2016 go away. Maybe you too are hoping for a new beginning in 2017. There was one year in my family's life when I was in college that my mother dubbed the annus horribilis, which is Latin for horrible year. Many people have used that phrase when they look back at a certain year in, uh, in wider human history or when they look back at their own personal or family lives. And my mother appropriated this usage. She said, um, within our family history, this was the um because that particular year um, involved so many different terrible things. That year encompassed a major back injury that caused months of excruciating pain for one person before it ended in surgery. That year involved a suicide attempt, rehab for addiction from alcohol, a mental illness episode, and job difficulties for more than one person. I have a large family. But all of this happened within the context of the national tragedy that was 9-11. So perhaps for you as well, has 2016 been an anus horribilis? Maybe it's been a year that's been characterized by physical pain from a chronic condition or illness. Maybe there's been emotional fallout from a divorce, your own or someone else's that you love. Maybe you're suffering, suffering because of the consequences of your own sin or suffering because of the consequences of someone else's sin. Maybe your addiction or that of a loved one has spiraled out of control and led to the inevitable trip to rehab. Maybe you just can't stop reliving a traumatic event from your past. Or perhaps you are simply, greatly laboring under the gnawing loneliness of singleness or of a loveless marriage. So then, if you, like those online, might be tempted to think that you can find hope by simply changing over the calendar to a new day, uh, a new month, a new year, I hate to say it, but this is not going to be the case. Despite the testimony of the past, we somehow keep thinking, don't we, that we are in control of our own destiny, that somehow we'll do better next year or even tomorrow. Somehow we can make our future better by turning over a new leaf on our own. We're so human, we hold out hope for a do over. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is just not possible. This is just not true. Our New Year's resolutions rarely stick. And when they do, our agenda for our own self-improvement still doesn't live up to our expectations for change. So sorry to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer here. But what I will say is that in the midst of the ruins of yesteryear, there is good news. There is hope for us. We who long for a new beginning, and that's all of us, Our longing is rightly placed um, when we long and look to God. God desires a new beginning for us, and that's what he gives us. But he doesn't give it to us on our own terms, does he? This real, true, and certain hope that we have as Christians, it comes not from within ourselves, but it comes from outside of us. And thank goodness In our first lesson for today, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about this new beginning. Just before our passage that's in your bulletin, at the beginning of chapter 61, there's one who is anointed by the Spirit of God, and he proclaims to the poor and the brokenhearted that it is now the year of the Lord's favor. And he goes on to say what this means and how and why it will happen. And then going on to the verses in our lesson, we see then this glad response of those who have been poor and brokenhearted to this proclamation of good news and a new hope. Isaiah paints for us a picture of transformation. The old becomes new. Those desolate have been consoled. Um, Those who experience a godly grief and sorrow in the past, even that lingers on in the present, are promised that they will be transformed eventually. They will eventually be the possessors of an everlasting joy. Isaiah uses three powerful images to evoke this transformation. His first image is an image of new clothes. We've all probably got some new clothes for Christmas. Well, there are new clothes that are given. There's a saying that's attributed to Mark Twain. The clothes make the man. Somehow there's this idea um, that something we wear, something about something we wear, changes who we are. As we step into special clothes, clothes that we might feel unworthy to wear, we take on the mentality behind them. I see this idea as I was thinking back. I see this idea presented in the 1990 movie Pretty Woman. Whether you've seen it or not, you might know. It's the story of a wealthy man who seems to have a morally upright life. Um, He's there in Los Angeles on a business trip, and he has been um, dumped by his girlfriend. And so he actually encounters a prostitute, and he hires her to escort him to these business functions. In order to make her play the part, help her play the part, he buys her clothes and jewelry that are appropriate for this imaginary station. He helps her to try to fit in with his upper class business partners and their wives. And she does well. She does too well almost. She steps up and she steps into the role. She demonstrates more true elegance and honesty. At the end of the movie, than any others, those others who have been born into that station, or have risen to that level of class. So the clothes in that movie make the woman. Well the clo- do the clothes make the man? I don't know. Do the clothes make the woman? I felt this way whenever I was an actor. There was something about that point in the rehearsal process where we got to put on certain parts of our costume. They were ready. The seamstress was done with them and we got to wear them as we rehearsed. There was something about that for me that allowed me to step into the role, to step into the character's personality much more fully. Well, this is a phenomenon that the clothes make the man. This is a phenomenon that the Apostle Paul understands deeply. At least three times in Paul's letters in Scripture, he urges new Christians to put on Christ or to live differently because they have put off the old sinful self and they have already put on the new self, Uh, like taking off old dirty clothes, rags, and stepping into a brand new outfit prepared just for them. Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That was to the Romans. To the Colossians, Paul urges them similarly to live according to their current spiritual reality, Essentially, they have already put off the old self with its practices, and they have put on the new self, um, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his of its creator. Paul urges ethical behavior, but he urges it based on the current spiritual reality, the spiritual reality that we who are in Christ have been saved in him and we have put on those new clothes that don't belong to us. They are the clothes that belong to Christ himself, the clothes of his righteousness. Well, Isaiah, going back to Isaiah, he prophesies about these clothes of righteousness. Taking on the voice of those who've been redeemed, he says, um, that God, through His anointed one, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He describes these garments of joy as being similar to the clothes, those glorious clothes, special clothes worn by a bride and a bridegroom. What a picture of transformation! And this transformation that Isaiah shows is one from sorrow and judgment and grief to joy and consolation uh, to all of that transition from the one to the other. He shows it as being something that we do not do, but that God does on our behalf. Though we're actors in this drama of our fall fall into sin, God himself is the actor in the drama of redemption. He is the one that clothes us. He is the one that takes and burns the rags of our sin and self-righteousness, and then he exchanges them for the pure white robe of Christ's own righteousness. So that's the first image that Isaiah uses, changing of clothes. The second image that he uses is one of a change of name. We might say, along with Shakespeare's Juliet, What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But in the ancient world, that was just not the case. A rose um, did not smell as sweet, whatever its name was. No, a person's name was very important. A person's name was so much more than a name. A name in the ancient world gets to the very essence of a person. A name encompasses their whole nature, their identity feel this even today. Even though the ancients felt this, I feel this today. And I felt this pressure, honestly, um, because I am about to have to name another human being. And, And my husband is as well. And my husband is far more laid back about what this name could be. We had decided on two names while we were dating. Two potential names. That's what you do when you're in your late 30s and you date, but we had decided on these two names, we negotiated them, so we had a boy name and a girl name, but when we found out the gender of our child, I thought, well, wait a second, maybe this name does not um, match this person. This person is special. This person is unique. This person has her own identity. And it's existed. This name we picked out before she even existed might not be her name. So I felt this great reluctance. I'm still um, waiting to see her face to face before we give her that name. But I've found that this weight of a name is so important for a person. Especially because I've felt such joy in my own name. My own name has been so important and meaningful for me. I don't think I could have had the courage to go into ministry if my parents had not named me Deborah Ruth. Well, how powerful are names and how powerful then that Isaiah speaks of a radical name change for God's people. They had been laboring under God's judgment for their sin of idolatry. They had justly been called forsaken, named desolate, but God promises here to change the name, their name, from forsaken and desolate to married, and my delight is in her. This change of name signals an end of judgment and a receiving of God's unmerited favor. This second image that Isaiah uses of a name change points then also to the third image that he uses. This transformation that he prophesies is also a change in relationship status. I remember when I was single, which was actually not very long ago now, and even further back to when Facebook first started, uh, I wondered whether even to deal with mentioning my relationship status. Publicly on Facebook, I didn't even like that phrase, relationship status, because that word status um, I didn't think should be associated with being married or being single. It maybe seemed too personal for me. It hurt too much. It signified too much some kind of success in society's eyes or failure in society's wise, eyes, something that I had um, no say over or no control over. Well, the status, whatever your status is, remember that this status, our relationship status, because we are relational beings, it affects us very deeply, whether single and deeply lonely, or married and lonely, or divorced and lonely. Isaiah shows us that the most important relationship status actually has to do with our relationship with the most important person ever, And that person is God himself. Despite all of Israel's sins, Yahweh here promises that he will forgive and repair the damage to the relationship. Though Israel was desolate and forsaken and justly so, God will metaphorically marry her. God will bind himself to his people in a new covenant, a covenant of love. Isaiah describes this transformation, this change in relationship status, and he uses the image of the the Lord delighting in his people as a bridegroom delights in his bride. One of my favorite things about weddings is that moment of the great reveal. The bride stands at the end of the long aisle and everyone's breath is taken away. I love that moment of looking back and seeing her. But then I also, almost more so, love the moment of looking at the groom. Whether I'm in the wedding party, in the pew, or standing as the officiant, I always try to catch a glimpse of the groom's face. The way the groom looks at the bride is the way our God looks at us. He looks at us with delight. Not because of our ability to change ourselves and our situations. But he looks at us with delight because of the love that he has in his heart for us. Because of his grace and mercy on our behalf. And so, of course, we say, the promise that Isaiah made, God's promise through Isaiah, it is, of course, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through him, God accomplishes this relationship repair, this change in status. The covenant is extended to, beyond Israel, to all of us who have sinned. All who know they need a Savior will find one in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Even though the specifics of our salvation are worked out through Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, that event would not be possible without Jesus' first coming down. Without God being born in the flesh in Bethlehem, his saving work could have never happened. And so this gift, this gift of salvation, this gift of a new name, a new reality, a new status with God is something that we herald when we celebrate Christmas itself. This bottom line of our transformation, um, this bottom line is that there is a reason for us to hope. We have a new beginning for those who are laboring under sin and suffering, for those of us who have experienced more than our fair share of grief and sorrow in 2016, we have a reason to hope. Our spiritual Anas horribles is over in Christ. We have already entered into the year of the Lord's favor. And not because the calendar has changed over. We've entered in because of Christ's past work on our behalf. And this new beginning is so much more than a simple do-over on our part. We can't do it over, but God has done it for us. And so though we still sin, though we experience suffering now, we can trust that joy will be our everlasting inheritance. As the psalmist says, "'Weeping may tarry for the night,' but joy comes in the morning. So take heart. No matter your past or your present, God has forgiven you in Christ, and he has clothed you with righteousness. He has changed your name and given you a new identity. He has rejoiced over you, delighted in you because of his love for you. Joy is yours even in the midst of these lingering vestiges of sin and sorrow and suffering. And so we can say, Happy New Year indeed. Amen.